Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, ladies and gents, to the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Kesslering. And on today's show, we welcome special guest, Joe Tonos, principal at Meteora Capital. Meteora is an affiliate of Glacier Capital, which is a New York-based investment management firm specializing in investment strategies such as arbitrage and SPACs. On today's podcast, Joe discusses what got him into SPAC investing, an insider's view of what goes into being a SPAC sponsor, his experience with the Haymaker series of blank check companies, Meteora's approach to thinking about SPAC investing, including IPOs, working with sponsors, and participating in pipe financings, and more. So with no further ado, here's our discussion with Meteora Capital's Joe Tonos. All right, excited to announce that we have Joe on the podcast today. He's a principal of Meteora Capital Partners, which is a subsidiary of Glazer Capital, one of the largest SPAC investors out there in the market. In addition, what's unique about Joe here is that he has been involved in being the sponsor of SPACs. He's part of the management of the Haymaker series. So Haymaker 1, 2, and 3, special purpose acquisition companies. So we're going to get quite the viewpoint with respect to SPAC investing, both from the principal side and the sponsor side. So Joe, welcome to the show today. Why don't we kick things off by having you tell our listeners a bit about your background and your story and what initially got you into the investing business. Thanks, Julian. Uh, Pleasure to be here with you and Michael today. Uh, My background, I uh, actually grew up in Toronto um, in the suburbs and Went to college in upstate New York at Niagara University. After graduating, I went back to Toronto and I joined the FX trading desk at CIBC Capital Markets, uh, where I worked as an analyst and then uh, pivoted to the investment banking side of, uh, of the sell side and worked at both Lazard and Bank of America Merrill Lynch in New York City uh, across the consumer and retail groups. And through those experiences, I uh, got to know uh, the, the team over at a group called Mistral Equity Partners, which is a consumer and retail-focused uh, investment platform, middle market buyouts, and growth equity. Um, I actually helped them work on a transaction when I was on the banking side and um, ended up joining them a couple years later and uh, during my pivot to the buy side. And uh, in, in parallel to that, I co-founded a group called Catch Ventures, which is more of a seed and Series A syndicated investment group. Uh, where we've done about a dozen investments on that platform over the last five years or so. But you know, through Mistral is really how I got involved in SPACs. Uh, one of the founders of Mistral, Andy Heyer, uh, partnered with his brother, Stephen Heyer, who was a longtime Fortune 500 C-suite operator, um, ran companies like Coca-Cola, Starwood Hotels, Turner Broadcasting, Young and Rubicam. And um, they partnered together in 2017 uh, to form Haymaker, uh, given my role at uh, at Mistral, myself and one of my colleagues, Chris Bradley, um, got brought into the management team of Haymaker, and we raised Haymaker One, uh, which was a three hundred and thirty million dollars spec at the end of twenty seventeen, um, and that's really what started our, our Haymaker franchise. So we had a nice blend of uh, Steve and Andy, uh, Steve having a, a long tenured 
operating career and Andy having you know 40 plus year Wall Street career was a really nice blend of the two skill sets. And uh, so, as I mentioned, we raised Haymaker One, which was $330 million in uh, November of 2017. Uh, we announced a business combination in November of 2018 with a business called One Spa World, um, $850 million enterprise value, operate spas and fitness facilities on cruise ships and at destination resorts around the world. And, uh, and then uh, we, we actually raised a pipe. We were the first... Yeah, we were the first um, SPAC to actually raise an institutional pipe. Um, prior to us, all uh, pipes as part of SPAC transactions came from affiliates of the sponsor. And we raised an institutional pipe, $180 million, um, included Goldman Sachs Asset Management, Franklin Templeton, Newberger Berman, Barron Capital, and Bonashi. And um, we were also the first SPAC to receive sell-side research prior to the closing of the business combination. That success led us to raise Haymaker 2 in the summer of 2019, which was a $400 million SPAC. And last year, we completed a business combination um, with Arco Holdings, um, GPM Investments, which is the seventh largest operator of C-stores in the United States. Um, they operate under 17 different banners. It's uh, been a roll-up strategy over the last uh, decade or so. And uh, we also raised a pipe as part of that transaction. And then um, earlier this year, we raised Haymaker 3, which was a $300 million SPAC. And, and shortly after the, uh, the SPAC IPO, um, I left to join Glazer Capital and, and helped the Glazer team in building the Meteora Capital Partners uh, platform, as you mentioned, which is an affiliate. And uh, we're really focused on the broader SPAC ecosystem, which uh, I'm happy to talk about in detail um, as we go on here. Yeah, prior to getting into the principal side of the business, I wanted to focus on SPAC operations and process with respect to ultimately getting to a business combination. Obviously, before that, there's a ton of groundwork that you got to cover, sourcing deals, due diligence. So I was wondering, you know, how do you source potential business combinations? What do you look for? What's part of the due diligence process between, uh, between initially coming across a potential target and then, you know, signing the business combination agreement. Yeah, certainly. Um, and you want to know what the market's changed quite a bit since we first started in 2017, um, just by nature of, of volume and number of SPACs, it's become so much more competitive and, right. and the type of diligence that's done and everything obviously has changed a little bit. But, well, by the uh, time, you know, like when you guys launched Haymaker One, how many SPACs were out there? Like 20? Yeah, there's about 20. I, I don't know the exact number, but it, I know it wasn't more than 25. That much I'm certain of. It was uh, somewhere in like that 21, 23 kind of number when we launched Haymaker One. And, um, you know, there was, it was a small group and we spent, interestingly enough, you want to talk about kind of some of the steps in the process. Uh, when we first started talking with uh, target candidates on Haymaker One, we usually spent the first meeting or bulk of the first meeting describing what a SPAC was and right. why a SPAC alternative made sense for that target and the target company shareholders. And um, obviously, that's no longer necessary, um, at least in probably 99% of situations, it's not. But, um, but that, it was an education process. I remember we put together a deck at Haymaker One that was, um, here's what a SPAC is, here's why a SPAC is, is a good alternative, so on and so forth. And even once we got to Haymaker Two, some of the early conversations we had still required a level of education, but, uh, but certainly not not necessarily the case anymore. But yeah, we really, we were fortunate. When I was part of the Haymaker team, Steve and Andy uh, obviously had long tenured careers, as I mentioned, and had a very expansive network. And so we really 
leaned on those networks. Um, obviously, Mistral had been a, a longtime uh, private equity uh, sponsor. And so we just had relationships all over the street with other private equity groups, uh, venture groups, growth equity groups, um, corporates, uh, family offices, you name it. We're, we're very fortunate. So we really kind of tapped those networks initially. We, we came up with a pretty extensive target list. I think by about the 30-day mark of Haymaker 1, we probably had uh, over 200 target names um, that were on our pipeline. Um, and that continued to actually grow over time. And we would do high-level diligence in terms of just you know reviewing the opportunities, whether it fit our high-level criteria. And then we would leverage um, our networks to hopefully get meetings with, with the management teams and or the uh, the decision makers, shareholders, um, whoever it might be with those target companies. And then from there, we really embarked on a, on a, on a private equity-like due diligence process is probably the best way that I would describe it. Um, we would usually put together a, uh, a high-level, we, we would make a, a high-level presentation where we could review in eight to 10 pages within our team whether we wanted to then move forward, do a proposal to the, the target shareholders and the target management team uh, where we'd run a full comp analysis, put together evaluation, so on and so forth. And, and then at that point is really where it starts to become more collaborative. I think one of, one of my favorite things about being involved with the SPAC product is how collaborative the process is. It's not like you know, traditional M&A where there's a buyer and a seller, and you're, you're butting heads trying to get the best price. It really truly is, let's join hands and, and figure it out. And as Andy Heyer likes to say, it's a, a SPAC is like a make your own Sunday because you figure out what everybody, all the stakeholders kind of need and want, and you figure out the best structure to make that work and uh, to, to get everyone the best outcome. And so we would kind of get to that point ahead of an LOI where we felt really comfortable about locking ourselves up. Obviously, most LOIs include exclusivity. And um, at that point is usually when we, we dive deeper into a data room and, uh, and do that private equity-like due diligence over a 30 to 60-day period with, with that company and, and making sure that we're, we're working through the definitive docs and all of those sorts of things in parallel, um, that all the T's were crossed and all the I's were dotted um, to make sure that, that we were working towards a, a solid transaction um, because we didn't want to put ourselves in a position where we were announcing something to the market that could potentially fall apart or even just you know break in a news story that the deal was potentially there, whatever the case may be. We certainly didn't want to want to tarnish any reputation. And I think you know, the other thing that's nice too is there were situations where we spoke with targets where we decided it wasn't right to submit an LOI or whatever. We did have maybe you know four or six meetings with that target. Um, and it, it, the nice thing about a SPAC is it's it's kind of like if, if everyone decides to go their separate ways, if you don't get too far down the line, run into that risk of, uh, of, of a deal being leaked, it's like a tree falling in the forest and everyone kind of goes their separate ways and figures it out from there. And now, a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest-growing alternative investment solution providers, with a suite of institutional-caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF, with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. 
And with respect to deals leaking, we see that very often these days. And in some instances, that's called a, a trial balloon in M&A parlance, where perhaps it's a strategic leak to see what the market thinks of it. Like, how often do you think it's a sponsor testing the waters to see the market reaction to that potential business combination? And how often is it like, oh, no, I can't believe this leak. We're, we're screwed and puts a deal at risk. Yeah, I think it's actually more commonly where you know, people are saying, oh, no, and it puts the deal at risk. And, and the reason I say that is because in, in a SPAC instance, it, it can put a little bit of taint on either the sponsor and or the target in a sense of saying, oh, you were running all the way with this one company and it got leaked. What else happened? Why are you now coming to us? Are we your second choice? Whatever the case may be. And so I actually think it's you know more likely in the case where, where people don't want the deal leaked, yeah, I think that there, there are certainly going to always be situations where a, a deal leak is a little bit strategic. Um, but that's, uh, you know, we don't necessarily view that as, as a strength in, in most cases. You know, I think there's, there's definitely, if, if we look at 2020, there was probably a little bit more strategy to that. But as the markets kind of settled back a little bit here in the, the second quarter of 21, and it's a little bit more of a traditional SPAC market. I don't think a lot of these leaks are necessarily um, beneficial to the transactions the way that they were um, maybe last year when, when it was a little bit more of a, a rat race. So for some of our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with some of the big players within the SPAC space, can you give a little bit of the background on Glazer Capital and their position within the SPAC ecosystem as an investor? Yeah, so Glazer Capital was founded in 1998 by Paul Glazer, uh, traditionally an event-driven market-neutral strategy. And since 2009, been involved in the SPAC market. Uh, the SPAC portfolio is led by Vic Mittal, who is a PM and has been with Glazer, PM and partner, and has been with Glazer since 2005. As SPACs became more mainstream five, six years ago, Glazer uh, has built a position uh, leadership position as a SPAC investor and the largest investor globally as of March 31st, 13F filings with approximately $5.5 billion of, uh, of SPAC investments. Through that, we've kind of built a strategy over the last number of years, investing across the entire SPAC ecosystem beyond just the public markets, whether that be traditional way IPOs or secondary trading. And that was really the genesis for Meteora Capital Partners, which, which sits under the broader uh, Glazer Capital management umbrella. So 2016 was actually the first risk capital investment as a co-sponsor. We, we try to lean in um, and have active dialogue with all of our sponsor teams uh, so that we can help them in getting a successful outcome for the sponsor and, and for us, obviously, too. And so what does that mean? We're really an end-to-end -end sponsor partner. We'll, we'll come in, we'll make an investment at the risk capital level uh, and, and act as an extension of their team throughout the process, helping to review the funnel, the pipeline, go through structuring, you know, helping review LOIs before they're submitted, um, and everything else that kind of comes with the SPAC process. Some of the time, we're even meeting teams prior to them uh, getting on board with underwriters and helping with underwriter selection in the super early days as well. And so um, ultimately, like I said, we're trying to, to drive a great outcome for everyone involved. And so most frequently, we have weekly or biweekly calls with our management teams. There are some situations where, where it's a little bit less frequent than that. There's a couple of situations where we lean in um, a little bit more hands-on and, and have an even more active dialogue than a weekly or biweekly touch base. So anyways, the, uh, 
you know, the, this strategy was launched last year in 2020 to invest across the entire SPAC ecosystem in terms of risk capital, um, public freely tradable redeemable securities, and, and pipes and structured notes on the back end um, in, in selective situations. Um, and, but really to be a holistic partner to and investor across the SPAC ecosystem, as I mentioned a couple of times. And so as that strategy was launched, it you know, became Meteor Capital Partners earlier this year with a little bit of a rebrand, still, as I mentioned, under the Glazer umbrella. We now have a team of eight individuals focused on the broader SPAC ecosystem investing, um, co-sponsorships through the public and through pipes and structure notes on the back end. I, I lead most of the illiquid and uh, co-sponsorship efforts, uh, working with our sponsor teams and reviewing the pipe opportunities on the back end. Um, as it relates to our risk capital investments, I would like to use a football reference and where I'm a little bit of either a quarterback or an offensive coordinator, depending on how high touch the situation is for us. And obviously, having been through the gauntlet a couple of times myself um, on the execution side with the Haymaker acquisition team, um, I've got some firsthand experience in, in hoping, hopefully adding significant value to these teams. You know, We are partners with first-time SPAC sponsors, and we've developed long-term relationships with other sponsors. We've got a couple groups now who are serial sponsor teams and are on their fourth, fifth, or sixth SPAC, and, and we've been a co-sponsor of theirs from day one. Um, so ultimately, as I mentioned, it, it creates an opportunity for us to be an end-to-end partner to the sponsors, um, but also to participate as an investor and uh, and be there from, from start to finish. And in terms of being selective, both on the front end, then on the pipe side of the investing mandate, what specifically do you look for first off in the sponsor team and then second off in the pro forma entity? Yeah, certainly. So I think um, as it relates to the front end with the sponsors, uh, we have a proprietary kind of diligence process, ranking process, um, where we meet with the sponsor multiple times. Uh, we'll conduct some, some due diligence on, on their track record and what their experience has been prior to launching a SPAC. For us, it's, it's really about believing in the team and, and their ability to get a, a high-quality deal done. And that starts with our belief in those individuals and, and how they've been able to accomplish that in the past. Uh, we love to see teams that have a blend of operating and what we call deal experience. So similar to what I had at Haymaker with a, a Wall Street veteran and an operating veteran. Um, and then, you know, being able to have a high level of confidence that there's a real pipeline there of opportunities. That, that And obviously, if there's a skew towards proprietary opportunities, all the better because Everyone listening to this probably knows how competitive it's gotten given how many SPACs are out there and, and getting into SPAC offs with five or seven or ten other SPACs. And so um, it, it's really kind of driven off that level of confidence in um, the team's ability to execute and uh, get a deal done, have the right deal flow. And that leads into what we think is, is the most important piece of it um, on the front end, which is actually providing sponsorship to the target company and the transaction. And I think that there's there's a number of situations that we've seen where the uh, the sponsors, you know, they're they're doing something outside of their domain of expertise, whether it be the industry um, or whatever the case is. Um, you know, the, you're called a sponsor for a reason, and I think it's because you need to bring sponsorship to the transaction, and you need to be able to add value um, post business combination closing. And I think that's something that we we put a lot of weight in um, when we're selecting who we want to partner with on the front end. Is it, are these are these the type of guys that are just doing a deal to do a deal, 
where these guys who you know want to be there help the company grow or whatever the strategy might be post business combination and and can be there as maybe the two primary folks on the sponsor team are or primary principals on the sponsor team are going to sit on the board of the combined company or whatever the case may be. So that that's something that we like to put a lot of weight in and that we see the opportunity for the sponsor team to add value post business combination and not just walk away from the from the deal at that point. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers. With a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance, the Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF, symbol 1C, ONEC on the TSX is Canada's first alternatives portfolio solution, providing exposure to six alternative asset classes, 10 alternative strategies in one easy to use, one choice ETF that charges a management fee of just 0.2%. The Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF trades under the symbol 1C ONEC on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. When you talk about when you talk about really having the sponsorship team adding value on the back end, is is that something when you're looking at the investment banks that you're going to partner with as well? You had mentioned earlier that you had the first sell side research uh, for for a SPAC. Is that something? Is the sell side research? Uh, is that one of the criteria that may, perhaps you would look at on the back end for choosing the bank that you partner with as well? Yeah, I would. I would definitely, definitely agree with you there. I think it's uh, you know fig- finding the right bank to partner with, especially when you're in the sponsor seat. Um, I think it comes down to their ability to to bring value to the transaction. Obviously, a, a bank can provide support post business combination by uh, by providing research. Um, but I think also too, it's critical that they have the expertise and you know related to that sector, whatever it is, as it you know as it's as it comes down to raising a pipe, as an example, right, or helping with some of the M and A um, buy side advisory work, due diligence with the sponsor team. Um, so I think you know most sponsors that we know, at least you know, the higher quality sponsors, uh, typically have relationships, investment banking relationships across the street. And and if uh, you know, uh, using us as an example, we were a consumer um, and hospitality focus group at Haymaker. Um, because of the relationships that Steve and Andy and our broader team had, um, we were able to lean on banks who had strong presence in consumer retail, hospitality, things of that nature. And I think that that is critical because they can help you through the process. But then more importantly, they can pro- provide continued support post-business combination, whether that be through equity research, whether that be through some type of lending or other financing type relationship with the company and, and being supportive throughout I was wondering with respect to the ideal sponsor team, say, you know, the best sponsor came along, what qualities would that include? Uh, You know, I'm talking about perhaps uh, access to principal capital, proprietary deal flow, domain expertise, uh, operating, a mix between operating and so-called deal-making experience, you know, anything else that you look for on the sponsor side that would really make it a, a must-do deal from your perspective? Yeah, I think those are those are kind of some of the critical buckets that you just mentioned there in terms of boxes to check. Um, I think depending on what stage we get introduced to that sponsor is to our partnership with them at Meteora, you know, it, it might be a little bit dependent too on, on 
who they're partnering with as an underwriter, you know, that, that can sometimes be beneficial. I mean, if you have, especially now as it's gotten more competitive um, and, and harder to kind of sell the, the front end of SPACs, uh, being able to get out with a, with a bulge bracket name and, uh, you know, have a more holistic support platform um, surrounding your, your SPAC team, you know, I think that that can be important as well. Uh, and, and I think, too, we like to look for teams that we believe, especially if we're meeting them for the first time and they're actually going to do their first SPAC, um, we love to focus on teams that we believe have the opportunity to build what we call a SPAC franchise and do two, three, four, five SPACs. You know, the, the, there's, a, there's a lot of guys that think that, you know, have gone on to raise one SPAC in the past and have done one SPAC and don't tend to do another. Maybe they didn't realize. I, I, I think a lot of times the, you know, the, the, the mainstream media will paint SPACs to be pretty simple. You raise some money, you go and do a deal, and everyone walks away with a lot of money. And yeah. uh, the sausage making in the middle there is a lot more work than most people have gotten credit for. And being able to you know, have a high level of confidence in the team to get through that the first time, but then also that they're going to want to have uh, the desire to do that again, I think is something that we look for too. I mean, that's, that's not a, a, a must check on the box by any stretch, but um, we, we love to partner with teams that we believe we can have a long-term relationship with that, go, that goes beyond one, one sponsor or one SPAC rate, excuse me. Right. And so I wanted to touch on current market dynamics, the current market environment. The Q4 of 2020 went through a bit of a frenzy into Q1 of this year, enhanced retail participation, you know, a lot uh, trading really to unprecedented levels. Market has cooled back down. Uh, so it went from red hot a number of months ago to you know, relatively subdued. I was wondering, what are your thoughts on the current market environment and what's your forecast with respect to the future? Yeah, everything you said is accurate. Uh, I think that right now we're running into just a little bit of a buzzsaw in terms of how much supply there is in the market. And I think that um, we need to see some more deals get announced on the back end to really allow the front end to, to reopen. And so uh, I forget what the exact number was. I think I saw uh, as of Friday, it was 403 SPACs that are actively seeking a target. And then there's another 280 odd or so SPACs in queue that, that have filed uh, to, to do the front end. And so I think what, you know, we, we've seen some green shoots. Actually, we, we're seeing a lot of green shoots in Europe right now. A lot of the uh, test the water meetings that we've been approached by over the last couple of weeks have been European-based um, issuances, um, which I think is great because that market's truly in its infancy. I, I kind of view that as like the 2016, 2017, uh, where we were in the U.S. But uh, I, I do think that, you know, our view, I think, you know, I think the pipe market's there. I think you're starting to see a little bit of the disintermediation go away and you're seeing more of a market equilibrium specifically around value of deals getting announced. I think the competitiveness saw a lot of, um, you know, SPAC offs and, and uh, processes get bid up in price and uh, they went to raise a pipe or get announced to the public or whatever the case may be. There was a pushback on what that valuation was. And I think you're starting to see that a little bit now prior to the deal actually being announced publicly, which is helpful. So you're seeing, uh, you know, right price deals getting announced of late, which, uh, which I think is beneficial to the market. I, I do think the pipe market is still there. I think it's as robust as it was six months ago. Uh, we're reviewing opportunities daily. I feel like there, there's at least one or two pipe situations we're reviewing every day. 
And so the, the market is there. You know, our view generally is that uh, once we see some more announcements happen, um, it'll hopefully open the front end back up and allow the, the queue to start moving again. But look, we, we view SPACs to be here to stay. We think it's a great alternative to IPOs. You know, having been on the sponsor side myself, I can see some of those benefits, you know, even more in depth than, you know, somebody can who's maybe just investing in SPACs, uh, you know, whether it's retail or institutional. But, but really seeing it from that sponsor side, I, I can speak to it myself. And yeah, I think, I think this, the, the SPAC market itself, what we've seen happen over the last you know, 12 to 18 months, really kind of just puts us at the third or fourth inning. And um, I think there's a long, long runway. Uh, do I see 2020 happening on a regular pace or Q1 of 2021? Probably not. Um, but I don't think we go back to a uh, 2018 or 2019 environment where you're maybe seeing you know, 50 SPACs or something like that um, come out each year. And I think it's really just, like I said, getting through uh, some of these deals that we have now or some of these SPACs that are searching right now announcing a deal will uh, will start to create a positive environment maybe again um, for folks once they, once they see some of these deals get announced. And I think the level of sophistication um, is important as well. I think retail investors are getting smarter as it relates to SPACs and understanding that there's a vote at the end, um, how they can participate and not get caught on the wrong side of the trade and so on and so forth. So I think as people become more educated, you know, the word SPAC is mainstream, but I don't think the underlying mechanics of SPACs are necessarily all that mainstream yet. And so as that um, starts to happen, I think it's, uh, you know, it kind of revitalizes things a little bit. But we have a positive outlook. Um, our hope is that the back half of this year you know, starts to look a little bit more like Q1 as opposed to Q2. I don't think it'll get quite back to that pace, but I think that, that we're ready for a strong uh, second half of the year. and We should see a lot of deal announcements too. All right. Well, a perfect place to wrap things up. Joe, I want to thank you for coming on the Absent Return podcast, sharing your unique insights on in the process of being part of the sponsor team and now different parts of the ecosystem in which participating as a principal investor. So thanks so much. Um, you know, wishing you all the best of luck. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, look forward to continuing to work with you and uh, having a solid year again at SPACs. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.